Today, on State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, we speak with your own Kramer, a prominent employment law lawyer in Tel Aviv, proud father of three daughters, adoring husband, and former elite combat soldier. Kramer, as his friends call him, was among the very small group of reservists that founded what has become one of the most important protest organizations today in Israel, Achim and Achayot Leneshek, Brothers and Sisters in Arms, a grassroots response to the coalition government's planned judicial overhaul. Stay with us for this candid discussion in which Kramer reflects on the wild ride in Israel since November 2022 and the long road ahead for which he is braced. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and today, a true Tel Avivian, living in the amazing state of Tel Aviv. But as I record this, I'm in paradise, a lakeside cottage north of Toronto, my hometown. Have a look at the photo posted with this episode online. It's even better than it looks. No soundproofing here, so if some sounds of nature slip in past the editing, enjoy them. Okay, let's do this. I first met Yaron Kramer in the early days of this never-ending judicial reform protest movement in Israel. I highly recommend that you listen to episode 5 of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast series, in which I spoke with Kramer and Ornschwil, among others, about the founding of the organization Achim Ve'achayot Leneshek and one of their first public stunts to draw attention to their cause, the ambush of the Kohelet Policy Forum offices in Jerusalem. Check it out. It was dropped on the stateoftelaviv.com website on March 23rd, Episode 5, entitled Kohelet Forum Fiasco in Israel. Since our initial meeting, Kramer and I have checked in every now and then. I like to hear his thoughts and insights as to what is happening and where this all leads. After several weeks of persistence, I managed to speak to him just before he was leaving with his family for a much-needed two-week vacation abroad. He had participated a week earlier in the four-day march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem with tens of thousands of others to show force outside the Knesset when the reasonableness law was passed, as it happened on July 24th. On the day we spoke, he had just picked up his daughter, who had been released, as they say in Israel. Actually, the word used in Hebrew translates as to be set free. She had been set free that day from her compulsory army service. He slipped away once home to speak with State of Tel Aviv. I'm guessing that he was in his home mamad, or safe room as we call them, because the sound was a little glitchy here and there. These mamads become all-purpose between conflicts. Home offices, storage, guest rooms. The super-reinforced concrete walls aren't always the most conducive to clear internet signals, but now you know another fun fact about life in Israel. Listening to your own Kramer puts you at the heart of the protest movement, as he is one of its key leaders. He joins State of Tel Aviv to discuss the challenge ahead and how he and his colleagues will never back down. You're on Kramer. So nice to see you. And thank you so much for making time for State of Tel Aviv today. Thank you, Vivian. 
I didn't think when we first met probably about six months ago that we'd still be having these conversations, but I actually can safely say that I do expect we will be having them six months from now. What do you think? Actually, I think that if you would ask me six months ago, I would promise you that it will take much more than six months. So really? It was quite, yeah, absolutely. It was quite obvious to me. It's not a matter of the reasonableness law or any other law, actually. I knew from the first beginning when we actually have started marching to Jerusalem, it was the beginning of February. I knew that this match will not end until something in the Israeli society will be changed. I knew that we are struggling or fighting actually not only against the judicial cope actually or reform, but I knew that when time passed, I was quite sure that what we are doing actually is we are taking all these people, all the liberal democrat Israelis that were staying in their home outside, first of all, and they understood that they don't want to be more friars. I don't want to be a friar. Yeah. This is my homeland, my holy homeland, and the only homeland that we have. And we had enough sitting on the couch, waiting that things will happen. So in order to change things, and in order to prevent awful things like this judicial reform, we have to go outside to the streets and to see that things that happened for many years and we were sleeping actually, and now it's our time to fight. And I knew it will not take a few months because it was quite obvious for me during these months that if it will not be the reasonableness or the committee to elect judges or any other thing, it will be a different thing. You heard Kramer use the word friar, which in Hebrew is slang for a sucker, someone who is a doormat, allows him or herself to be taken advantage of or treated badly. That is how many Israelis who work, pay taxes, serve in the army, and then do reserve duty for decades feel. They feel like friars, suckers. Another common metaphor in Israel these days is sleepwalking, as in, the more productive demographic in the country was stuck on autopilot or sleepwalking for the last 40 years or so. They were busy working and sticking their heads in the sand, hoping that the more intractable problems would somehow self-resolve. And that is also understandable. Israel is a demanding, sometimes draining place in which to live. The country persists through a constant state of hyper-vigilance and organized chaos. The security situation never lets up. It takes a lot of energy to live in an environment like that. Israel is also the most energizing, creative, irreverent, exhilarating place I know. But all the signs of this eventual crisis in society that besets Israel at the moment were in plain sight for decades. Everyone just chose not to see them. Not today. We'll get to it tomorrow. And now we are all paying a steep price for that inattention. Yaron Kramer is braced for a long, sustained war to restore balance to Israeli society and political life. We can see that almost every morning we wake up with a new bill being filed in the Knesset, a reform here and there. So we have to keep uh, and to be awake 24 hours to see what is happening, actually. That's one of the reasons that I'm not depressed from what happened 
and last Monday, because for my opinion, it is just one battle in a long war, actually. And you have to excuse me that I'm using a military warnings, actually, but that's the way I see it. I see this is one battle. We lost this battle, but it's a long war. And what is important and what will happen at the end of this long war campaign? Yeah, I don't in any way begrudge you using the battle or the military metaphors because I think they're very appropriate. And as I recall, we knew that they were likely going to pass it on Monday or Tuesday, but weren't we taken a bit by surprise when it happened? I actually was not surprised until, you know, I knew what would happen. But for me, the most important thing was not what would happen on Monday, but how people will wake up the day after or Wednesday morning or actually last Saturday night, I just looked and saw hundreds of thousands of people going to Kaplan. I was visiting two other demonstrations in Ramata Sharon, and I saw these people like saying, we are not going to give up. We all know that what happened in Monday was actually awful day, a very sad day to the Israeli democracy, but it's totally not a change of 100%. We didn't lose all this war. It's just one battle. And it was important to see all these people outside because it gave me the proof that what I thought is exactly what will happen. That people, the fact that people gone out of their homes like for a few months, they will not go back to their homes until they will get their goal, actually, their target. And the target is not only defending democracy, but also ensuring that Israel will be a liberal state that our rights will be defended, but the principle of equality between people, for example. We want to understand that all these things will be maintained. So actually, as I said, a sad day with a very big hope. When Kramer refers to what happened on Monday, he's referring specifically to Monday, July 24th, when the reasonableness law was passed in the Knesset. The first of what may be a slew of judicial reform legislative changes. For an in-depth discussion as to why many Israelis are so concerned about this new law, have a listen to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast from July 23rd, entitled The Reasonableness Bill, What Separates Democratic Israel from the Abyss, in which I speak with Hebrew University law professor Yuval Shani about the various issues of concern and why so many Israelis are deeply alarmed. On the evening of Monday, July 24th, a few hours after the high drama in the Knesset, during which the reasonableness law was passed, Prime Minister Netanyahu addressed the nation on television in a message that, quite frankly, was beneath the stature of his office. He indulged in name-calling, as has become his default tone, and expressed disdain for the hysteria, as he put it, displayed by those opposed to reform. In the same breath, he invited the opposition to come to the table, to negotiate, find a consensus, a way through this crisis, before the Knesset returns in November. It would have been so easy for Prime Minister Netanyahu to have been magnanimous, to express some regret for the turmoil being experienced in Israel, but his profound hope that all parties might sort through this mess in a professional and peaceful manner. But he did not do that. He chose to taunt, demean, and denigrate. 
What's your comment when the prime minister and his coalition colleagues say that the reaction of the anti-reform movement is hysterical? How do you respond to that? Hysterical. Yeah. I already got used to the fact that we are being insulted every morning. And this is the, I don't know if insulted is the right word, actually. What we actually saw in the last few months that every morning, an incitement campaign, actually, every morning, they are calling us terrorists, anarchists. You just have to choose any word. Terrorists, we are already terrorists. Hysterical. There is no meaning for all these words because we understand quite good, first of all, who are the other side that we are confronting with, actually. We understand it. I already am saying it again and again, but in order to take a democracy, mm -hmm. to change it to a dictatorship, it's not happening with one law or one morning. It can take even years. So the first law, oh, you're hysteric. It's a minor change. I just heard that he gave an interview for an American news, channel news, I don't know, Fox, CNN, whatever, because he yeah. goes out to give interviews only for Americans, but here in Israel, in Hebrew, he has problem in Hebrew. He prefers to do it in English. And there is a reason, because if you see what he's talking in English, it's totally different But what he's saying in Hebrew. I really don't care. I really don't care. The fact that yeah. I'm not listening, not to Netanyahu, not to the government, not the coalition, because I understand that the Netanyahu does not control on his government, on his coalition. I'm not listening because I understand exactly some, as I said, someone who knows Netanyahu very well told me uh, a few weeks ago when I met him that in the past it was 80% Netanyahu and 20% the coalition. And now it's just the opposite. It's 20% Netanyahu and 80% the coalition. Let's say the truth. Netanyahu is weak. Netanyahu is not healthy. Netanyahu is weak. Everybody can see it. You cannot hide. Even if you think that you are very articulated in English, it cannot cover the fact that everybody see that it's a lie. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com all one word. Now, back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, and please consider supporting State of Tel Aviv with a paid or free subscription. The week following passage of the reasonableness law was a bad one for Prime Minister Netanyahu and for Israel. New York responded swiftly and made clear that the institutional financial influencers were not impressed with this law and what the street considered to be the instability that it would continue to stoke in Israel. The CEO of Moody's was reportedly furious with Netanyahu, commenting privately 
that Prime Minister Netanyahu had straight up lied to his face. And, he apparently stated, that Netanyahu had the distinction of having been the first world leader to have done so. Kramer reminded me of this particularly embarrassing and egregious sideshow when we spoke. The street was not buying Bibi's spin, and the street made clear that it did not believe the Prime Minister of Israel. If you're interested in this topic further, then I highly recommend that you listen to a two-part podcast on State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, in-depth interviews with former Bank of Israel governor from 2013 to 2018, Professor Karnit Flug. These podcasts were published on our website, stateoftelaviv.com, on August 9th and 11th, episodes 19 and 20. Professor Flug and I discuss in depth the very troubling economic consequences of the government's judicial reform initiative. Since our conversation, of course, the shekel has continued its downward slide in value, crossing a critical threshold earlier this week of 3.8 shekels to the US dollar. But we'll leave that particular matter for another day. Among the many unfortunate reactions to the judicial reform plans of this government has been the decision of many IDF reservists, including fighter pilots, to decline to serve. They take the position that they swore allegiance to serve and protect a democracy, and that they will not risk their lives for a government which they see as a destroyer of liberal democracy in Israel. Many, many IDF reservists serve voluntarily, long past any time they are required by law to do so, out of the deepest loyalty and patriotism. They call themselves, and the country has always treated them as, volunteers. The best of the best, who serve altruistically. But when they first began to speak publicly in late January about no longer volunteering, This government, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, smeared these men and women as resistors and refuseniks. Yaron Kramer and I get into this touchy subject. They started calling you Sarvanim resistors as soon as the IDF reservists announced that they were going to consider not reporting for duty. I denied the use of the word Sarvanim refusal or any other word. Let's give the right definition for the word. It can be in Hebrew, in English, or any other language. But there are thousands of Israeli, the best Israelis, that risked their life for many years for a democracy, for an army of a democracy, defending the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. They gave hundreds of days during their life. They lost their friends. They injured. Some of them suffered for many years from all the affected of the wars and any activities that they had. And one day, they see what is happening in their country, in their state. And what they said, look, it's not a mandatory to be a volunteer. Being a volunteer means that I want to give time to my country. And I want to risk my life for this country as a volunteer based on a contract, an unwritten contract by a very strong contract. And this context means that this is a democracy. It's a Jewish and democracy state. 100% democracy, not 50% and not 60%. Now, if you want to break this contract, if you want to break these rules, if you want to change this rule, one side, 
not in a very wide consent. Then there are, as I'm saying to my kids, for every action, there is reaction. And the reaction of this act will be that people does not feel inside that they want to be volunteers. That's the right word. You cannot force someone to be a volunteer. You cannot force someone to do something that, you know, after you tear him apart, please think what caused these people, thousands of people, pilots, special units, many officers, my best friends, to say one day, I cannot do it anymore. Sorry. This is the red line that you crossed. What caused them? When you take someone and you put them in the corner without any way to move, that's the reason. You crossed to the red zone. So if you want to ask the questions of what will happen to the Israeli security and our enemies and all this blah, 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 I'm saying always, there is one prime minister and one minister of security in Israel. Yoaz Galan and Netanyahu. Go to them. Ask them what they did in order to prevent it. What they did in order to change the think and the belief of these people. Why did you make this when you knew exactly what will happen? Because we told from the first beginning of this stage of the reform that an army of the people will be only in a democracy. Don't touch our democracy. So what I'm saying to everybody, don't mess with our democracy, okay? Your Saturday, your kosher is our democracy, okay? Understand? So these are our lines and we have to set these lines. Hope that they will understand what will happen. And now we see what is happening, actually. The IDF is almost silent. We are prepared to a war and the effects will be just in the long term. Okay. So let's wait and see what is the long term. But what they are doing actually today and so few days for a week, they are risking what is connecting us. But they are risking the, the security of Israel just for what? For this Thing, tiny thing, as the prime minister said in English, just the reasonableness. Law, is it is worth it? Tell me, if it's so tiny, so leave this tiny thing that is so important for us and be responsible. Take responsibility. Being leader means that you have to take responsibility, not only for the army, not only for the IDF, but for the people. Because what happened in last, as I mentioned. Last Monday, you declared the war against the Israeli people, Netanyahu. And as I said, for every action, there will be a reaction. And now we are watching just the first stage of their reaction. What's your view on Yoav Gallant, who did not vote against and remains Minister of Defense? I learned during the last years, and I'm not so young actually, is the fact that you, was a, you were a general in the IDF or the chief of staff, or I don't know, the head of the security agencies in Israel. And a very brave warrior doesn't mean that you are a leader. When I'm looking at Yoav Garland, I'm saying that he will never be a leader. He will never be a leader. And if I met him, that's what I, say, I will say to him. You will never be a leader. Because a leader is someone that needs to show his people the right way to take risks and even to sacrifice himself for his people. Yoav Gallant is a clever guy, he's a smart guy, he knows exactly what is happening. He can see our eyes, he can feel 
the same stomach ache that we feel for the last six or seven months. Many people that knew Galant sent him a lot of messages. He know exactly what is happening. Right. He decided every day to think about himself, his future. I must be prime minister. And the only way to be prime minister is to stay in the Likud. I cannot show my back to my friends in the Likud or to the electors of the Likud. Sometimes you have to choose. In order to be a leader, you have to take risks and you have to choose. I'm not feel pity for your Afghan. So you don't then see any merit really in the point of view that when Gallant himself says, better for me to stay inside the tent and keep an eye on things rather than be outside, you dismiss that. I really dismiss it. You know why? Because if you are a leader, then one of your goals is not to be alone, is to take the second one and the third one and the fourth one. Yeah, it takes time sometimes. Yeah. Someone might replace you. There will be a new minister of security. Okay, never mind. Be the first one. But make the history of Israel. Change the history of Israel. Be with us. Be the first one. Yeah, you will pay the price. But we are taking the first brick from the wall. Be the first brick and be the leader for these people. Show them and tell everybody that what you did is for the Israeli people that you cannot see. For example, the decision of Asaf Tal-El. Asaf Tal-El was the CEO of the Ministry of Education. And two days Asaf. ago, he resigned. He resigned. Kramer refers here to Asaf Tal-El, who resigned from the position of Director General of the Ministry of Education, the top public service job in that ministry in late July. And he resigned out of concern regarding the deep divisions in Israel resulting from the judicial reform legislation. In other words, he felt he could not continue to serve, professionally and in good conscience, a government that he felt was responsible for so much destruction. And Salel also happens to be good friends, according to Kramer, with the Minister of Education, Yoav Kish. But that did not stand in the way of his very very significant action and statement. And he's a very good friend of Kish, for example. But he wrote in his letter, I cannot see what is happening and stay in this position. That's responsibility. That's taking leadership. It was very confident for him to stay the CEO of the Minister of Education. Why not? I'm not responsible for the judicial coup. That's what I'm saying. So you have gallant, actually, Stole everybody his real face, actually. I'm thinking about myself. And I'm looking, actually, for these people. Call me naive, but I think that what is happening in Israel is the worst situation in the Israeli history for its 75 years. It really is that serious. Some say that this is the most seminal moment in Israel's history since its founding. Others see it as a blend of 48 and 73, and still others add 67 for good measure. What all agree on is that it is very, very serious. This coalition government has reinstigated many foundational conflicts, opening deep wounds for which there is no quick suture. The delicate status quo that prevailed impossibly for 75 years has been upended. We cannot go back and moving forward will require a radical recalibration of social, economic, political, religious, and judicial institutions. 
What Israel needs desperately is some form of constitution that articulates clearly the state's founding principles. We kind of sort of have that in the Declaration of Independence, which was then weakly and spottily interpreted in the Basic Laws, which were meant to become a foundational state document, but that never happened. And here we are. On April 25th, State of Tel Aviv and Beyond published podcast episode 10, a conversation about the political intrigue leading up to David Ben-Gurion's Declaration of Independence. In that episode, I interviewed two fellow Canadians, originally Torontonians too, in fact, Professor Neil Rogachevsky of Yeshiva University and Dov Ziegler. These best friends both live in New York City now and published recently a really important book analyzing the political environment and compromises that prevailed in the three weeks leading up to the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel on May 14, 1948. The book is entitled Israel's Declaration of Independence, The History and Political Theory of the Nation's Founding Moment. If the topic interests you, and it should, have a listen. The authors worked with various drafts of the Declaration of Independence that were in the mix in those final weeks in 1948, drafts which had never before been translated into English and so carefully considered and analyzed. It's a tremendous contribution to scholarship on the founding of the State of Israel. As we do today, Ben-Gurion at that time grappled with the place of the Haredim, or the ultra-Orthodox, in Israeli society. And in the end, the old man, as they called him, he punted the issue in his view, he was dealing with something so epic, the sovereignty of the Jewish people after thousands of years in exile. The rest, he said, was operational detail. Others could schwitz over the small stuff. And so, here we are. Among the many challenges facing Israel is the place of Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jews in society. Currently comprising 13% of the population of 9 million, this demographic has a fertility rate of eight children per family and is ballooning disproportionately to other sectors of the population. Haredi political leaders are also demanding a permanent exemption from the IDF draft for all its men and women, as well as increased economic entitlements, which are simply not sustainable. State of Tel Aviv has explored this complex issue in many articles and podcasts. We invite you to peruse the website before we start paywalling archives. But now, let's get back to Yaron Kramer and hear how he and his activist colleagues are seeing the ultra-Orthodox in the larger picture. How does the Haredi population figure or factor into your strategy, your activism, your planning? You've got this huge cohort of the population that not only refuses to serve, but wants to make it a constitutional value. That IDF service is equal in value to the state as Torah study. How do you respond to them? First of all, I don't see the Haredim, for example, as the other side that we have to confront. I see their, I know what they think, I know what they want, but at this stage, I don't believe that we have to be fighting against the Haredim. Even when we had all the demonstration in Bnei Brak and Jerusalem, for example, it was not against the Haredim. It was a platform for us 
to have conversation and tell them, look, what happened actually in the past will not happen in the future. We have to change something in this game. It doesn't make sense. And I really don't want to to the, uh, to the new bill that was set, the basic law, that if you are studying uh, Torah, then you are equal to a soldier, because I'm quite sure this law will not pass. I think that the Haredim is also trying to understand their position because when I see, for example, their media, okay, the newspaper, Yated Neeman, for example, you can articles, they're saying totally different. And they're saying, look, all this reform, we really don't need this reform. We don't believe in court and the Supreme Court of Israel. And it's so many years, we don't want to change it. What we want actually is making few changes that we will not have to join the army when we are 18, for example. And of course, money, we really love money. But we don't need to change the whole rule of games. This is the time to change things, to have some consent between the Haredim, between us, between the liberal and democratic people of Israel. I think that there is a majority of people thinking that it doesn't matter if you are joining the army. Let's give few alternatives for the military, for example. National service, civil service, something like that. Let's build something together. Right. And I think that if we do it with patience, by talking, you know, it will take time. They will understand because they have no other options. Netanyahu will not be forever the Israeli prime minister. And believe me that after Netanyahu, the Likud will not remain the same Likud. I cannot see Gallant sitting under Nir Barkat with Yariv Levin and all this. They hate each other more than they hate us. So we all understand that the picture will change. And the Haredim, now they have to understand that unless they will take different position, they might find themselves in the future outside. And they really intimidated from the fact being outside. Right. So that's my perspective, actually. And I think that brothers and sisters in arms do not see the, the Haredim parties as the target. Nowadays, the target that we have is Benjamin Netanyahu, Yoav Gallant, the coalition, Yariv Levin. These are the people that we are focusing our acts against and not the... Rotman, Smotrich, and Ben here, would we add those as well? Yes, but I think that for these days, the next few weeks, considering what is happening in the army, I think that the focus will be Netanyahu and Yoav Gallant. They are the main targets that we have to focus on. You cannot spread yourself for so many. After all, it's August, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we are doing, actually. And we just heard today that on September 12th, there will be an historical discussion in Supreme Court, 15 judges. Yeah. Very interesting what will happen there. Very interesting. Johan Kramer, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for State of thank Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. I thank you for your patience. It took a few weeks just to set this conversation. But, hey, Savlanut, uh, Gever. Savlanut right. is the, the name of the game, actually. Savlanut in Hebrew means patience, and Kramer could not have been more on the mark. Savlanut, patience, is the name of the game. Israel is in the early stages, in his view, of a long overdue, no-holds-barred, deferred discussion on the basic rules of the game, the constitutional basis upon which this great country may agree and move forward. I'm grateful to have this opportunity to reflect and rejuvenate this month. So, so many Israelis always take holiday in August, and many did so again this year. 
to escape the punishing heat and humidity. But this time, we all needed it that much more. Kramer will be back in the trenches in the coming weeks with patience, dedication, and, agree with him or not, unflagging pride and patriotism. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me, I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.